What's going on, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 24 of Octo Radio. I, as always, am Alden Diaz, your host and resident Star Wars geek here in these parts. Where are these parts? Well, I guess it's kind of up to you. But we're back. It's a new year. This is the first show of 2020, of the new decade. I took, uh, you know, the month between the new movie, between Rise of Skywalker, and now off to recharge had lots of stuff going on in my personal life aside from Star Wars as much as I would like Star Wars to be the focus of everything. Uh, It's been a lot with, you know, planning and trying to get, you know, family things going and also new job, positive stuff, uh, positive changes on that front, uh, moving up a little bit in the world. But of course, that has made me busy. But I am happy to report that today we've got a very special guest on the show the first of a few different guests uh, that all come from different backgrounds, different walks of life, that do different things professionally and creatively, that are going to be coming on the show to discuss all things Star Wars and fandom, whether it be the new movie or in today's case, you know, the new movie, Mandalorian, different theory-related stuff. So it's really exciting, and I'm happy to have everybody joining me on this journey. There's going to be, of course, even returning guests. I'm talking to some other people. There's some people I'm really excited about, some big names in the world of online commentary and punditry and reviewing and you know analysis hosting that you know I would love to have on that I'm in talks with. So that is really exciting. But today's guest is uh, the Imperial Senate podcast's Charlie Ashby, who... If you don't follow on Twitter, is an amazing Twitter follow, a really hilarious guy with a great wit, a great heart, really fun to talk to. And we dive into all kinds of things, you know, mostly centered on The Rise of Skywalker and also Mandalorian Season 1. Because of the holidays, I never sat down and did a proper spoiler review of the first season of Mandalorian, so we definitely wanted to get into that, discuss our theories, discuss Charlie's affinity for the character of the armorer played by emily swallow who already has built up her own fandom around the character lot seeing lots of shirts for that character which is really exciting love to get my hands on some of those um so it's a really interesting conversation i mean we get into some theories from charlie that i think are straight up beautiful especially in regards to anakin skywalker and his relation to things like force ghosts so It definitely gets really, really interesting. I hope you all enjoy it. We will, in future episodes, uh, in the next few weeks, talk about things like Taika Waititi, possibly directing a Star Wars feature film after his fantastic Chapter 8, the finale of Mandalorian Season 1. I thought he did a great job, and I have plenty of thoughts on what the development could mean, who he could be working with, what I'd like to see from it, what I think Taika's place is in a world like Star Wars. There are also other things... That Charlie and I get into in regards to the Obi-Wan show, which for a hot minute, everyone seemed to think was canceled just because of a few reports. But that is the online commentary world. It seems everybody, you know, jumps the gun and people hint that they know things that they have only really heard and they don't really know. And it gets really complicated. But we still have an Obi-Wan show as of today, as of the end of January, there is still an Obi-Wan show. Uh, and when Charlie and I do discuss it a little bit, I believe, toward the tail end of the conversation. And then other things, I mean, Rise of the Resistance, I still have not been on it at the time of this recording. But in future episodes, I will discuss my experience on there. I am going with my girlfriend up to Orlando. We are Miami-based, and so we will be able to experience what I've heard is literally the goat of all rides. And I'm really excited to check it out. Uh, and then also coming up will be the Star Wars Resistance finale review. Season 2 review overall, 
trying to figure out if there's going to be someone that I'll be able to have on to discuss that with me, just because uh, Resistance viewers are a little bit harder to find than, say, Clone Wars or Rebels viewers. But I think that it definitely has delivered this season and has brought in new fans, and I'm excited to talk about the entire journey uh, in the future with you. Uh, namely, the most important person on this journey with me is, of course, you, and I appreciate you listening. So all of that preamble out of the way, teases of what's to come. I think it's time just to get into the interview. This is a really fun conversation, and again, thanks so much to Charlie. We discuss at the end where you can find Charlie and all of that good stuff. So let's jump into it right now with Charlie Ashby. All right, ladies and gentlemen, so as I said up top, we've got a special guest today, the first uh, sort of crossover of sorts with another excellent Star Wars show online, another great personality that you can see reviewing things and breaking things down and just being an all-around hilarious guy on Twitter and then within his writing, within his podcasting. This is Charlie Ashby of the Imperial Senate podcast. He is also a freelance writer and a journalist and critic and a sharer of GIFs and memes and uh, an all-around good dude. So, Charlie, how's it going? Hey, it's nice to be here, yeah. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on. Of course, man, of course. I mean, when I was sort of getting started, you know, almost a year ago, uh, specifically in the Star Wars space and not just, you know, more general podcasting and everything, uh, Imperial Senate and then your Twitter feed and everything, are you know, lots of mutual follows, I think, lots of shows that we're both a fan of. And then we just started popping up in each other's mentions and everything. And I realized, like, this, this guy's good people. Oh, yeah. And I felt the same, too. It's always good to um, like promote people and share stuff. And I always find when you know someone's a good person, just, you know, help push them. That's always Absolutely. The Absolutely. Especially because, you know, you probably know as well as I do that, you know, your even your close friends in life or your your parents or whoever, like, it can be really hard to get even just like a share. Just click share. It can be hard to get yeah. anything out of people. Like, that's all I ask. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's nothing. I don't ask for Fun much. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so it's cool to find, uh, you know, the more supportive side of the Star Wars community, because, you know, we before we were recording, uh, Charlie and I were talking about just the sort of like anxiety that we get as, you know, genre fans and as fans of these massive franchises, especially Star Wars and how part of the tension and it isn't so much I liked or disliked a plot point. It's. Oh God, am I still gonna have friends after this? Like, what is the conversation <laughs> actually gonna be like? And then, and, yeah. you can go, and you can go on at such length. I mean, I listened to your review of Skywalker on Imperial Senate, and you guys outdid the movie. It, it's a, it's a <laughs> that, that podcast is the JJ cut. Yeah, I think we beat the JJ cut in existing. Um, yeah, it was, it was three and a half hours long. We were talking, and we didn't. We realized we hadn't even got to like the gist of it so much so that we've just recorded a follow-up episode which um is still about the same amount of time as the film's like two hours or something um and yeah which starts from questions and yeah we just there's so much to talk about which can be a good thing or a negative thing um depending on how you fuse certain things what you go in to the film with uh preconceptions and notions and like you said, it it can be very difficult to sort of navigate those waters sometimes. Yeah, I, I definitely think so as well. And it's it's hard uh, at you know to a point. And I, I kind of had to lead with this in my written review of the movie, where it was like disclaimer, basically, like I am investing my heart into this in a way that is going to somewhat cloud 
my critical judgment of this because I've had people read me the riot act of things about the movie. And I'm like, you know, honestly, can't disagree with any of that. But I've I've still seen it five times and I will probably see it more times. And it's that weird long term uh, like romance that we have with Star Wars where it's like we forgive you. Yeah. And there's some things that I feel like I personally am more willing to forgive than in other films. Like, um, you can just simply dismiss the whole resurrection of Palpatine and say, just say a, a piece of dialogue from episode three, which came out what by that point, 14 years ago. And I'd be yeah. like, okay, <laughs> makes sense. That sums it up. I'm like, well, that checks out. I mean, I mean I've had people <laughs> that, you know, either coworkers that are like, well, they don't really explain Palpatine. And I'm like, well, first of all, the dialogue. Second of all, didn't you see all the tanks on Exegol? And didn't you see the, the red fluid? And they're like, okay, and what of it? And I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's not a valid argument. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, it's supposed to be a fairy tale. So what what are you expecting from the film for Palpatine to go, well, basically, I, I had an escape pod on the Death Star, and I got out, and then for 10 years I was doing this, and I cloned Snoke, and then like 15 minutes later, he's like, and that's how I'm here. Like, you wouldn't want to listen to that. So Exactly, just yeah, exactly. I mean, that to me is sort of uh, novel material. And, and maybe, who knows? We know they shot something uh, based on, you know, the editor interviews that have been coming out. So maybe on Disney Plus or something, we'll get the actual Sheev monologue of, of what actually went down. But with things like that, you know, what you said is is spot on to it. Yeah, that's fairy tale. And so that leads sort of into a question just, you know, to take your Star Wars temperature a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, are you like me, whereas like I gravitate way more toward, uh, the mythology of it all less so than like ships and tech and things like that. So I'm kind of, I like both. I like, I'm I'm sort of in the middle, like Rogue One is one of my favorite films of the era. It might be my favorite film of this new Disney era. Mm. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of cool mythological stuff that I really dig. I love all the force ghost stuff. I love what Ryan did with The Last Jedi, that whole sequence where he discusses the Force, and they visually show, like, life and death and everything about that. I I love both of those sides, and I feel like when you Star Wars does it properly, it's when they're both sort of evened out. Um, yeah. But even then, like, I can take both sort of sides of the stories. Like, the one of the fun things I had recently was watching The Mandalorian and playing Full and Order, which seems like a nice little uh, one end of the spectrum for both sides. Very true. That is very um, true. And both felt very, very, very Star Wars, um, which I, you know, is always a good thing. And I like that right now we're in this place where, and I think that's something that people need to be reminded of a little bit, is that, hey, if you didn't enjoy X property, you can move over here and either get with Mandalorian, you know, like a four hour movie with Fallen Order, like a 10 hour movie, like those experiences, if you're open to other mediums. You know, you can get a little bit of everything where, you know, for me, like resistance right now is sort of like my if I need a pure, like fun vitamin, like I just take mm. in an episode of resistance and I'm like, wow, that had none of the stress, none of the anxiety, none of the arguing of fandom. It was just a pure like I watched Kaz and those characters just do a race and it's so satisfying to me or seeing something like in Fallen Order, like, oh, I'm just going to go find as many things as I can for beating one to scan things like that, that are just, you know, pure in, in a sense. Yeah. And I also like to think of like what George said about the whole saga in general, being told by three PO and R2D2, like how 
much of a reliable narrator are these films yeah. are they are they like being told as it happened or are they a representation of a story that could have been told maybe you know Darth Vader might not look exactly like that and I think there's a really cool um, one of those myths and fables books where they show like Vader as this like sort of demonic being and how stories are told like verbally and how they change and depictions and stuff and we see it in their own culture like you could argue that maybe these films aren't exactly what happened and maybe and but if you watch the mandalorian that's how it happened and that's why it's a bit more like that so it's a bit I, there's so much you can talk about star wars and like the whole sort of mythological side of it so i tend to let those things slide a little bit like i don't want it to be as serious like i don't want to go that's why i don't i can't stand all these like neil deGrasse tyson rants about <laughs> why there's no sound in space it's like it's a, yeah, yeah it's a it's a movie yeah, I mean, that that was me uh, post-Last Jedi, which is a film that I really, really love. And coming out of that, I remember going into work the next day, and a guy that I was kind of just like acquaintances with, he looked at me dead in the eye, and he said, it was fine, but Leia in space made no sense. And I'm like, that's your line of what makes sense? This this <laughs> is the end? This is, this is the, the line for you in this galaxy? That took you out of it? It wasn't anything else? And he's like, well, I'm just saying, it's space. And I'm like, and I, I was like, I can't, can't do it. Can't do it. Got to watch the blood pressure. Got to move on. Yeah, just relax, calm. My friend had the exact same reasoning. He was like, it looked silly. And I'm like, Anakin had his legs chopped off and his arms, was burnt alive, and managed to survive. And then you and... have, you know, the mall survival where the reason is because rage, like because anger. Yeah. He was basically able to hold on to life. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's like, well, of course, that makes perfect sense. He was so angry, he didn't want to die. Yeah. And I that. remember in uh in what was it in Kotor two, I don't know if you if you played that if you were into the the art more RPG ones, the, the Knights of the Old Republic and all that. But you had uh, Darth Sion, who was literally a corpse. He was a <laughs> great corpse, and he was kept alive purely by hate. Yes, yeah, it's like one of the. It's just. It's yeah, it's ludicrous. It's supposed to be ludicrous for a reason. Like I, I never really understood the lay of space thing, like being a negative. Like I can see people saying, "Oh, it was a bit too long," and like yeah, whatever. And the whole sure. Mary Poppins, the Mary Poppins thing is stupid. It's like, well, why is she gliding like that? It's like, well, it is space. <laughs> like you have to have some sort of degree of like you know. And... Yeah, and it's just like, well, I think that people sometimes get latched onto their initial knee-jerk reaction of a scene and mm. they don't take a second to say oh well well that's why and i think last jedi has a lot of those where what you kept hearing was oh leia poppins you know this that she's flying and i'm like no she's her arm goes out first for a reason she's she's grabbing and, yeah. and reeling herself back in like it's not suddenly flight if there was suddenly flight everyone would be doing it at best there's gliding in star wars but it's just you know, you got that a little bit with Luke, too. Like, oh, why would he have the blue lightsaber? And it's like, I okay, okay, I get it. But just take a second. He wasn't there when it was destroyed. He probably doesn't even know at that point. Like, he's doing things for a reason. Everybody sort of jumps to these conclusions a lot uh, and never takes a second to reevaluate the way they feel, which I think is important where, you know, you cited Rogue One as probably your favorite. That's the one that I've had a complicated relationship with. But the more that people make good points about it, I'm able to say, oh, I never thought of that with, you know, the context of 
X, Y, and Z. Like, Fallen Order has already made me like Rogue One more because I have more of an experience with Saw now. Mm. Yeah, and it's one of those things as well. Where, like, if someone doesn't like one of the films as much as you do, it doesn't matter. Like, a lot of people don't, a lot of people I know hate Solo and for really great reasons. And I accept those reasons. I watched the film and I thought it was fine. Like, it wasn't exceptional, it wasn't terrible. But, and the same thing with Rogue One. Like, I really, really do enjoy Rogue One, but I, I can see why people might not like it. And like, I don't get why people get bo- so bothered by people's enjoyment or, like, not enjoying something. It just seems so sad and tiring. <laughs> I, couldn't, I, I yeah. can't deal with it. It almost feels like we, and I've been talking about this a lot lately with, uh, and I will try not to breach too far into this because it'll it'll have to be a conversation for another day because there's so mm-hmm. much. But with uh, the ending of Ben Solo, and yeah. with the you know Ben Demption being achieved, Raylo being achieved, but then still uh, the hate and and vitriol coming from people that wanted those two things where. It's it's this idea that my my identity becomes my pop culture identity. Like I love Star Wars, but I don't want to make it who I am because then you get hurt more. And I think that there's a line there where as we online have sort of been able to make these connections like you and I right now across the ocean, you know, being able to have a conversation, you know, in the blink of an eye that has made us more open. But at the same time we then are, you know, our friendship circle gets bigger and we want that friendship circle to say the same. So we feel like, you know, if Charlie disagreed with me right now, then does that hurt the friendship that I've gained? And and we've become really like standoffish, you know, whereas mm-hmm. when there was no Star Wars for, for a decade, you know, between two, Revenge of the Sith and, and Force Awakens, it was relatively peaceful, which was weird. It's almost like as a, a double-edged sword of getting more people involved. Yeah, and I don't think it's like one specific group either because it's just the nature of fandom nowadays. I think there's like obviously like we saw it with uh, the Last Jedi as well, where I didn't realize how many um, Admiral Akbar fans there were, <laughs> but apparently you know that was a <laughs> and now was... now Nine Nub fans. Oh, I mean, well Nine Nub survived. We didn't see it in the film. We didn't see it in the film. Film canon, he survived. That's all I'm saying. In my soul. Yeah. And if not, I will attack. I'm joking. Um, <laughs> if not, Kathleen Kennedy fired. Yeah, Kathleen Kennedy. She's she's may have successfully created three films that have hit the ni- uh, the nineteen films only to make one billion dollars, but that's clearly a failure in my eyes because Nine Nun is not here anymore. Um, it, it's it's utterly true. Uh, yeah, it's the, it's the um, it's the sort of the echo chamber sort of way of Twitter working, and I think as well. I think it's less so people attaching to mediums and stuff. I feel like it's just something we need to do in terms of a society in general, which is just be kinder. Yeah. Like you might not like the film. You might really dislike what JJ said. That's absolutely fine. You're entitled to that opinion. But like people saying stuff like, Oh, we should kill him. Even if you're joking, it's like, okay, just turn it down a little bit. Just a yeah, little bit. And, and even even like less. And what you're saying is so true with just like general kindness, because you're right. It is not one specific group. This is not and something that Ryan Johnson says a lot, which I appreciate. This is not exclusive to Star Wars at no. all. Like this is just a widespread and it's Internet and it's society. But even, you know, the the less horrific and egregious, like not even the threats, but the 
you know, they should remake this or uh, they didn't, you know, they didn't care about us and they and they messed it up or or JJ was slapping Ryan or Ryan was slapping JJ. Like, I feel like everyone needs to reevaluate and think these were the children of the originals that fell in love with this. Why would they ever intentionally want to hurt this or you, you know? Yeah. And yeah, it's one of those things where I think one of the talking points I've seen as well, where a large audience of why when they cater to us, and I feel like that's true. There is a young audience of, and there's not just young people, by the way, but there is a lot of audiences that did like the character of Ben Solo, which is great because he's one of the best characters in this trilogy. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you also have to cater to the whole audience, which is a lot of people. And even though we love these stories, we have to remember as well that Disney is a corporation. They're trying to make money. <laughs> so yeah. they're trying to get as many people as possible. Um, but the thing that confuses me the most, and I, thought, I think we talked about this in our latest episode, is I, I don't see how... I don't really get the idea of the Save Ben Solo movement. Not in terms of I don't get why people are doing it, but from my perspective, he got like everything he wanted in the film yes the only thing he wanted in life was to return home to his family which he does in in the spirit world and in episode three yoda refers to becoming a force ghost the training as immortality Mm -hmm. so he's immortal now yeah and it's the whole i mean i I, it's so i'm so glad you said this like you just you just brought me so much joy like it's (laughs) It's so true where I've I've said this on Twitter, but it cannot these conversations cannot adequately be had with here's my thread. Well, here's my thread. Well, here's my thread about your thread. So it's it's sort of like not only did he get everything he wanted, but he was able to he with his deeds wrapped up the story of this family and made sure that when the history of the galaxy is written, that they fall into a positive, not a negative, because when you look at Anakin Skywalker, his entire, you know, the trigger for his descent into evil is I want the power to save the one I love and I'll do anything to get it. But that is a motivation of I want, I want, I want, and I need, and I need her and I want her here. Whereas Ben is able to achieve that because he wants Ray to live. It has nothing to do with him in that moment. Yeah. He's he's seeing someone that deserves to live that laid her life on the line. And so when people, you know, I agree with you, like Ben Solo was an amazing character. And those 10 minutes where he is doing all this nonverbal, you know, performance work and, and showing us what a redeemed Ben is. I mean, of course, we want more than that. You know, absolutely. I would watch 10 hours of that. But the problem is it was the third act of the final film and we needed to tie things up. And I think that. When you go back to Empire Strikes Back or, like, as you said, Revenge of the Sith, Yoda, of course, luminous beings, but then also telling Anakin, rejoice for those around you who become one with the Force. What he got, and I believe, if I'm counting off the top of my head, what he got was an, a reward that only seven other beings have had to that point. Qui-Gon starting it off, then Obi-Wan and Yoda and Luke and Leia, like, no one else. I think he probably is the seventh. I think Obi Wan. I'll count it later. But yeah, he. That's, yeah, that's the sort of the weird question though. I think Episode Nine does a really great job at sort of opening some doors to some fascinating stories because 
the way that the cosmic force works seems to have changed slightly, which I think is interesting. I agree. Whereas, is it you're referring? I guess to his his path there. Like, did he complete this training that Klingon um, discovered? More so the the voices. Oh yeah, yeah. What what does that mean? Can somebody? Is it possible that maybe you know my original initial thought was, is it possible that characters like Qui Gon and Kenobi that have achieved this can sort of act as guides momentarily for the others? Which is, that's, I, yeah, that's my feeling. My head canon before the film, my head canon for the last uh, few years has been, I've always wanted to tell or someone to tell the story of Anakin after event uh, after Return of the Jedi. Yes, for those yeah. for that couple of hours. Yeah, because there is so much like we saw the in the Yoda arc in the Clone Wars, there is so much more to the force, especially after you die. Like dying seems to be the end point for people, but it looks like the cosmic force, there's, there's like another world out there. Mm-hmm. So my my thought was that once Anakin dies, he comes back out into the cosmic force. He sees Obi Wan, he sees Qui Gon, he sees Yoda. He has to be trained. He has to be redeemed. Like redemption isn't just throwing eating Palpatine off a building. It, <laughs> it is. It has to be earned. It has to be good deeds. And we've already seen as well in Rebels the like the world between worlds and all this weird cosmic force shenanigans and how in the Clone Wars I think Qui Gon mentions how there's no space and there's no time. So my idea was maybe Anakin helps people trans like transcend into the cosmic force. So maybe. Mace Windu is fighting Palpatine. Anakin throws him out a window. He dies. But the first thing he sees is Anakin from after episode six reaching out to him and saving him. Wow. So it's it's almost like Anakin is not doomed to serve, but almost is, will now repent by facilitating the transfer of life in a way. Yeah, like a sort of like an angel for some. Like he, um, which you know, has like a nice link back to. Are you an angel? Are you an angel? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> which uh, in the in the Vader comics, when Charles Soule brought that line back and gave it to his vision of Padme, it was like haunting. Like anything so that they can do to tie those ideas together and redeem, you know, cheesier lines, I think is definitely that. That's a beautiful idea, man. That's really cool. And that's what I think would be interesting. Like because I know a lot of people are saying, oh. Bring back Ben Solo, more Ben Solo stories. Like, instead of the negative slant, I feel like I agree with the idea of more Ben Solo stories because if we get to see Ben do the same thing and Anakin teach him, so someone who's selflessly teaching him, he's always wanted to meet his grandfather, um, who is teaching him to do the sort of the same thing, and we follow him through this weird cosmic world. I think it'd be cool because a lot of people want the crazy cosmic stuff, and also Ben Solo is an interesting character to delve in because. He's only just started this journey, so he still might have some conflicts. Yeah, I, and, I definitely yeah. I, I see the potential there for sure. And I think that everything that you're saying right now um, just speaks to the the how do I how do I phrase this um, in a way that's not, you know, so combative against the save Ben Solo people. But when I when I see their their anger or or their desire for more of these stories i really do wonder what the disconnect is and, and again it's all perception it's all how you interpret these stories but you know you see a lot of the palpatine one people online and the you know ben solo was robbed or he was abandoned by his family 
because why did they put all this effort into Ray and not into him? And mm. for me, it's well, because they learned because they they had six years between Ben's fall and the present to say, what could we have done better with our own boy? And now there's this girl who comes from way worse circumstance, as we discovered vaguely sometime. And they are rectifying their mistakes in Ray. You know, everybody is still redeeming themselves. And I think that Leia reaching out and touching his heart that one last time, and I th- I interpreted it as triggering the memory of Han um, in some way. You know, he, Ray had said, you keep replaying what you do to your father, but now he's replaying it in the hypothetical of what if I'd said the right things. I interpreted the whole movie as his family not abandoning him, that they still had his back, they were still thinking about him. And I think that the only, and again, it's not my movie, but the only thing that's missing that could have brought it from like a 9 to a 10 for me in terms of that arc, not the whole film, um, would have been a Luke scene. I think that's the only thing that was kind of missing was a Luke-Ben interaction. Yeah, I agree. And actually, when I watched the, the, the film for a second time, this might be just my interpretation of it, but there's a really cool moment where Ben is using Vader's helmet to mess with Rey and induce the um, the visions of her past. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of backfires and shows his own misdeeds. Yeah. Which I, I interpreted it as Anakin actually trying to contact him. Yeah, that, that could be something for sure. Because at that point, you know, we don't know the specifics of how Palpatine was, quote unquote, every voice inside your head. Like, we don't know what exactly that was, if it was like a Voldemort-esque just sort of mind connection. But at that point, now Palpatine is corporeal and he's doing his whole final order thing with General Pride and he's gearing up for a fight. So um, and he's made now physical contact with Ben Solo. So at this point, I'm assuming that that's ended and the helmet as a catalyst of sorts is sort of now open so to speak yeah i feel like it's the end game for palpatine so he feels like he's got his pawns in order and he doesn't really need to keep pushing at ben whereas beforehand like the voices in his head like it's him constantly manipulating his life um in terms of snoke in terms of pretending to be vader all these horrible manipulation tactics and i like the palpatine wins thing is just so wrong to me because like you said, you summed it up really perfectly. Like the whole point of Anakin's downfall was that he was selfish, and what Ben does is absolutely selfless. So that's Palpatine would want. If Palpatine won, Ben would have been selfish and just survived. Exactly. If Palpatine won, Ray would have struck him down. And mm-hmm. people say, "Oh, well, it, it's a Palpatine. It's Palpatine versus Palpatine in the final scene." And and. He, you know, technically, uh, you know, by the books, that is a correct read of the scene. And yes, it is a Palpatine at the Lars homestead at the end by blood. But that is exactly what Luke addressed on Octo. And that's the whole idea of found family. And for this woman now to acknowledge the darkness of her origins, but she erases his name from history. And even though the Skywalker's are gone physically we as star wars fans know that a death is not the end and b that these you know appropriately a long time ago stories will go down in the galactic record or whatever for you know our grandchildren to see episodes you know episode 20 in theaters Hmm. these events will 
show that the Skywalkers left the galaxy in a better place than when they found it. And I think that's the point. Like, not every victory is going to be Endor. We had the nice victory with Ray Finn and Poe hugging and everyone celebrating. And then we get that coda of it's a it's a wide open space now, you know, a lightsaber with a new color for just the moviegoers and then a handle that represents, you know, a hilt of her past. And now we can go on like I, I don't see any cynicism in any of that. And so many people feel like it's a cynical dour ending. And it's just and again, it's not wrong, but it obviously has left you and I very confused. Yeah, I certainly didn't feel that was a cynical ending. I thought it was a really beautiful, um, again, tying into mythological sort of things. It's it's Ray returning Excalibur back to the river. Yeah. And calling out for more stories in the future. Um, or, I don't know, it's as a modern uh, variation. It's Jumanji <laughs> calling out to <laughs> a new bunch of kids to cause some crazy action. Um yeah, I, I really loved it. And I really liked the idea of it going back to where it all started. And there was a thread about Ray, which was really great. And I can't remember the name of the person who wrote it. So I do apologize. But it mentioned about how the Skywalker family started off with a woman on her own who was a slave on a desert planet. And we don't know her backstory. We don't know her parents. We don't know her family. Skywalker might not even be her name. She might have just been given it. Um, and the story ends with a woman who was enslaved on a desert planet who takes on the name Skywalker, which I thought was a lovely sort of, you know, full yeah. circle moment. I really and love that. The fact where she's, ne- she's basically near Shmi. Like Shmi's there on that homestead. She's buried yeah. there. Yeah. Um, so it's like a, yeah, like a full circle thing. In essence, the, you know, Shmi's grandchildren, you know, with the sabers are now buried alongside her ceremonially. Exactly, yeah. Like it's the whole family. Like, like the origin of the name is there to witness. Rain. And I know so, a lot of people push back on it and say, "Well, Luke hated that place," and I'm like, "Luke hated being stuck in that place." But yeah. Luke, Luke grew up with supportive parental figures with Owen and Beru. Luke, Luke acknowledges himself. You know, in Return of the Jedi, you know, he tells Han, "I never, I never thought I'd come back here." But it's not in a in a in a uh, hateful way. Like he's he's acknowledged how far he's come, and like it or not, you know, you can make the argument of oh, she should have taken the sabers to Naboo. She should have taken the sabers to Octo to any number of places. But all the roads lead back there. And just on a meta level, you know, JJ has gotten some flack for saying, you know, addressing the question of why no Anakin ghost and why no Ben ghost. And would I have loved either of them, especially a Ben ghost? Yes, I would have. But his whole thing was put the twins back together and the sabers and the ghosts. And it makes a lot of sense because even though they didn't meet until, you know, the death star cell block, a 23, it's the, his story was looking up, you know, in those deleted scenes, looking up at the sky, looking at the twin sons in the film and Leia's cruiser being over Tatooine. Like it -hmm. all sort of hovers there uh, with a mystical importance for, it actually in film history, but also for their events as siblings. Yeah, and as well, like, or well, one, she couldn't exactly put it on order on. Yeah, <laughs> that yes. was a bit. <laughs> exactly. That was a bit difficult. Um, Naboo again. That's also Palpatine's planet. So yeah, 
negative link there. So, from yeah, Tatooine just makes the most perfect sense symbolically because that's where the origin of the Skywalker name comes from, which is why she comes. She said she that's where she becomes a Skywalker. That's where the name or, originated from. Um, but also, yeah, like the space twins. When Ryan Johnson said about Luke hating Tatooine, like you said, he meant just Episode Four, and the reason was because he was a nineteen-year-old at yeah. home, not being able to go out with his friends. Because his parent parental figures were overprotective for a reason. Exactly. <laughs> to be fair. Um, yeah, he doesn't hate Tatooine. He just wanted to escape, and he did. And he had nothing. He would have, left hated, he would have hated any planet where Baru and Owen were raising him. Exactly. Yeah. It's because it was an experience thing, not a pl- not a planet. He's not anti sand like his father. You know. <laughs> well, we don't know that. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, <laughs> all all the memes of Anakin. Like emotionally, like sobbing because of his saber being buried in the Tatooine sand. Yeah, that's the best. Yeah, that was the best. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. I was like, oh no. The, the, the final slap from a Palpatine to Anakin <laughs> Skywalker. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so all of that is sort of uh, we accidentally see. This is what happens. This is why the Imperial Senate episode was three hours long, Charlie. This is I'm what sorry. Happened. No, it, it's 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 a hundred percent my fault as well. But uh, we actually did have a plan for what to talk about. Uh, we'll just we'll make it a little bit more of a of a of a loose conversation, sort of like we've been having. But um, I know it's hard to remember people, but there was also a season of television that just happened. I know we're all yelling at each other about other things because we don't have Baby Yoda right now to keep us all calm. <laughs> but just a couple of weeks ago, we had the first ever live action Star Wars TV show end, and it's so I mean the first season, and it's so surreal to even say that because that was like the stuff of dreams, you know, when we were kids. Yeah, I remember being nine and just refreshing StarWars.com when they announced that George Lucas was doing the first ever Star Wars TV show. Um, and then refreshing that page for about 10 years. <laughs> Never coming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And being like, I heard there's a hundred scripts for Underworld out there. And and they're, and they're going to make them one day. And Boba Fett's going to be in it. And it's going to be cool. Yeah, and then we transferred all of that energy to... I heard they're making a game called 1313, and it's going to be about a young Boba Fett. And and, and that got a little closer. Got to give them their credit. It got a little closer to happening. But so we uh, watched Mandalorian season one, obviously, and a a lot of us have seen it multiple times. I'm sure you've seen a lot of the episodes multiple times, if not all of it. Um, So what are your sort of just general feelings now that we're a little bit removed from it? How did you feel? What stood out to you? Uh, The floor is yours. Yeah, um, like I said, we waited since 2005 for a live-action TV show, and I think The Mandalorian was well worth the wait, because it is such a great um, introductory series. I think it does a really good job, as well as being a, a, a sort of a great first season of television and a good Star Wars story. It's also a very good way at, I think, exploring the universe further. I think that the standalones for the, like the standalone films were the future of Star Wars in a way, but the cinematic offerings weren't the best place for those stories. I think Solo could have been a much better TV show. Um, if you, I think the first film would have been a, a great first season. Whereas the, like, the finale is where he finally gets the Falcon and it flies off. And then the next season is where they take off again. Um, so I think The Mandalorian does a great job at sort of opening up the realm of possibilities for like a, 
a bunch of Star Wars stories on the platform, like we see with Marvel um, doing. And it makes me even more excited for Kenobi in terms of getting to follow a character that we actually do know and get to explore that story in a TV sort of like in a TV show. So we get to do a, sort of a deeper delve of that character. Mm-hmm. And I think that will one open up the possibility for more character driven stories of people that we already know. And also I'm just excited because Deborah Chow is amazing. <laughs> oh, she is just wonderful, man. Like the way that she is able to, and, and all the Mando directors, did a great job of bringing emotion through the suit, but especially I go back to chapter three, the sin a lot where that moment in the cockpit where he goes to pull the lever and notices that the little, little ball isn't on it. There's so much happening there behind the mask. And if she can pull that from that material, I cannot wait to see like her silent, um, you know, contemplative desert uh, exile scenes that I hope we get. I think she's going to crush it. Yeah, it was so... like Episode 3 was the moment where I was like, okay, this show isn't on the next level because that was some good stuff. Like that, The scene with the Mando is just coming down. I can watch that on a loop and never, ever get tired of it. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. And like you said, all the directors did a great job. Um, I think overall, uh, my least favorite episode has to be the one I wasn't expecting to be the least favorite one, like in terms of directors that were announced. And that was this whole sort of thing about Dave Filoni being the future of Star Wars. And I think episode one was a really great episode. But episode five, I I wasn't really a big fan of. Yeah, I feel exactly the same way. In terms of the script and the direction. So I don't know whether that's because he's more suited to the animation department realm of Star Wars, or at least... Uh, you know, telling those type of stories. I have to wonder, you know, when it comes to Dave specifically, this is a good good time to talk about this because I haven't had a person to talk about it with. Um, when they're when you're making a show like this or like a Game of Thrones or any big budget like premium, you know, multi director project like this, they talk about you know how they break the season and how the season is not shot all sequentially. And Dave and Deborah Chow at the premiere were talking about, oh, yeah, we were together this day because, you know, Deb was shooting X from her episode and I was shooting Y from mine, both on the same set. So when I watched the season again, I wondered to myself, wait a second, what if five was made before one? And that's why it feels so much more rough. And then one is a more confident Filoni who had learned more of the tricks of the trade. I think that might be the case, yeah. It definitely seems that they might have shared that set from episode 5 and 7. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. If that's the case, then I, I if they give him another episode uh, for season 2, I'd be interested to see how that goes, and if that's better, then I'm glad. Because I love Dave Filoni. Me too, yeah. I'm, obviously, you know, I, if, if people that have listened to this show know how much I love Rebels especially. I mean, Clone Wars, of course, but... Rebels is a special place in my heart. And I think that what he brought to the the show overall this season, um, obviously Mandalorian lore, but he is, and a lot of this is Favreau too, because he wrote the scripts, but I feel like Favreau might have written the scripts, you know, a long time ago. And he's talked about how he had to pit, he pitched this and he came in with four episodes without even consulting with anybody. And I think Dave definitely helped refine these characters because even in episode five, which I think everyone agrees is the weakest, 
if that had been in one of his animated shows, it would have flowed better. I think it's just a matter of him gaining his confidence, but his introductions of the characters in episode one are so strong with uh, Grief Karga and IG and, of course, Baby Yoda. He has a, a, a keen eye for what it was that George did that made people want action figures of, of every single background character and things like that. Yeah, the first episode is a really great episode, actually. I, I really enjoyed the sort of direction and stuff. Especially that final shot. That was a beautiful shot. Yeah, instantly um, iconic. I remember just being floored by that moment and thinking, wow, they got us. Like, they bought and sold us this whole, um, it's going to be gritty, like Boba yeah. Fett fans, get ready. And then at the end, it was like, surprise, it's about a single dad. And that's what I loved about the show. That's when I that was when I I knew I could I could sort of breathe a little bit because I'm not really into the edgy like edgy stuff like especially like the you know like the older you stories where like the Mandalorians were badass and they could do this just that and it's cool to see those moments in the show like the armor is like the most amazing character but yeah. when you like I can't I don't want to deal with like the generic I don't want Klingons in Star Wars sort of thing. Right. Um, so seeing the caring side of it, that's when I was like, okay, I can relax. This is a Star Wars show. <laughs> of course, it's going to be like this. Absolutely. Um, and and part of, you know, you're saying the caring side is the perfect way to put it. The caring side of, of their culture, because, you know, when you look at the through line of, of Din Djarin and and Baby Yoda, it's this whole thing of, yeah, this is the way does mean that we fly in with our jetpacks. And, you know, and shoot them up when we have to and light things on fire and shoot rockets and all that. And everything that is sort of 1980s action figure backyard adventure. But it's also this is the way children are the most important thing. Foundlings, uh, kids without homes, people that need a fresh start. And all of that just felt so like George Lucas talking about 12 year olds. Yeah. If I had to describe the show, it'd be cool with heart yeah it's yeah it's, it's so like you're like okay i want to actually figure out that 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 it's cool to see the kenner um stormtrooper you know troop transport from rebels and the classic kenner set but at the same time you're like but also well i want to give me baby yoda i want all the baby yoda stuff yeah i i think that baby yoda i mean what is there left really to be said aside from the fact that it's one of the the it's so interesting because how much we decry nostalgia sometimes as a fandom and just as a as a as a popular culture, uh, you know, commentators in general. Oh, it, Star Wars relies too much on nostalgia uh, and on the film side of things. But then the thing that unifies us all is the definition of a nostalgia play, where somebody it, it it feels like such a boardroom decision to be like make it cuter, but then it works so flawlessly. Yeah, and I think the way it works that it's earnest about it. It's like, and it's such an interesting character, like, because we haven't delved into the, the species of Yoda. And the, so far, they haven't really done too much delving in so far on the show, but it doesn't really matter because as soon as you see the baby, you're automatically attached to it because it looks like a character that we have been attached to. And then on the other side, if that didn't win you over, he's cute as hell. <laughs> Yeah. So of course you're going to be protective, and then the way that they kept it a secret, um, 
the story, like just following in the story, like it has the heart, and I think that wins you over in the end. I think that's why Star Wars works, and it's not a cynical story. It's all about hope. Absolutely, so, absolutely. And just on a on a technical level, when we're introduced to him in Chapter One, and and in Chapter Two, I mean, we get the um, little floating uh, cradle, which you know instantly became iconic, like we said with the shot. But then in you know Rick Famuyiwa's first episode. Uh, the child, he's floating next to Mando the whole time, you know, very lone wolf and cub, obviously. And I thought that was a, a really smart choice to have him move that way. And I thought, oh, well, you know, he'll be floating along for this entire show. But then they really started to show what that puppet could do. And they really started to show their blend of practical and CG. And he's walking and he's force pulling and pushing and he's waving at Carl Weathers. And they managed to flesh him out into such a fully realized character by the end that when in chapter eight he's doing the you know the Kane and Jarrus like block all the fire and and save them from the the flame trooper like he feels like a legitimate part of that crew yeah the puppet is amazing it's like next level sort of stuff um I just remember like thinking how can you do so well with this puppet but fail tremendously with the Phantom Menace it really is just it just makes it so much worse in comparison like <laughs> yeah. retroactively bad and it's so funny that I, I mentioned to my girlfriend she's only seen uh the blu-ray uh release of, of phantom menace and i had a, i told her one day i said you know this is a, a, a edited in yoda that this is redone after the fact she said what did it look like before and so i google imaged it she goes what is that <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah they're like okay what does a young yoda look like somehow looks older yeah they were like as if we launched yoda at high speeds up against a wall like a like a flattened like sort of almost like disappointed grandpa like it's just a weird it's a weird choice he's a very intense puppet those eyes are very intense uh, yeah and i think that you know i give a lot of love to ryan johnson on this podcast but one of his crowning achievements was getting the original mold and making his puppet Yoda so glorious. I I loved puppet Yoda in that movie, and I think that after that, and and of course with the encouragement of Werner Herzog, I think that that probably is what gave him the confidence to say, "All right, C, uh, CG, we don't need it. This can be mostly a practical character," and it, and it feels like the whole show feels very alive in the same way that you know, the original Frank Oz Yoda did everything in Mandalorian. I mean, even the obviously CG things like, you know, the Mudhorn, it feel that feels like a legit fight. You're like he's getting his ass beat and you feel like, wow, like he could lose here in chapter two. Yeah, exactly. And I think what you said as well, like it's funny how the CGI rendition of Yoda in the prequel trilogy feels like it blends into the original trilogy much better than the puppet did so it's it's a good reminder of how decent cg and puppetry together can actually work well if done properly like a puppet can be made in a terrible fashion and it will not work and it's the same with cg but once you've got those two teams working together and just on the next level i think that's when you sort of you know that's when you win yeah absolutely um, so moving on from Baby Yoda a little bit to some characters with more dialogue, uh, you know, taking this chapter by chapter would be 
uh, a very long effort and also would recall us to it would it would require us to recall a lot of information on the spot. So uh, I think that the characters are definitely the strongest aspect of the show and it and mm-hmm. it sort of allows for us to each latch on a different thing. So now that the season is over, who do you find yourself going back to the most in your brain? Who did you fall in love with and and who would you say was your your favorite overall? Um I know we just said we're going to jump off uh, Baby Yoda for not talking too much, but I have to say the armorer, even though she has great monologues, but she's not in it that as much as any other character. Mm-hmm. I'm just so drawn to that character. She's such an interesting, badass woman with the coolest armor, and it's not OTT, like it's just a, a really clever design. And the phrasing that she gets to say... Um, there's a specific sentence in episode eight, I believe, which is such a Star Warsy line where it's so drawn out and full of like long words. I can't even remember it. I think it might be when she disguise, dis- uh, describes the Jedi. She's like, "Oh, there's a scourge of war." Like, <laughs> like enemy sorcerers. Enemy sorcerers. I was like, "Okay, that's cool." Yeah, yeah. Anyone- that- it just hearing anyone describe it in the in that roundabout term. It's like it's like Mark Hamill saying laser sword in Last Jedi of the the in universe colloquialisms and stuff. Yeah, I, I geek out on those small sh- like silly things where anyone else is like, okay, well that's, that's fine. I'm like, okay, that's cool. They call them sorcerers. I love that, like wizards and stuff. Um, yeah, I really love the armorer. I'm constantly drawn to that character. What her history was. Um, and it's the same with Cara Dune, who yeah. is just you know, off the bat, amazing. Um, really cool to see that character. And the way, you know that a script is good when you could just drop a small thing and it adds so much to a character. And seeing how like sort of tense and, uh, you know, she wasn't very talkative about her own past, apart from being a rebel shock trooper. And then once Mon- Mo- Moff Gideon tells everyone that she's from Alderaan, yeah, everything oh, yeah. clicks. Everything clicks in your head, and you're like, "This, yes, that's why she's this way." The way she treated Quill, the way that she was so willing to sh- sign up for this mission, the you know, just her, her not just being having been a rebel, but having been a rebel desi- designed to drop in and destroy, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it it added so much to her, and I think well, well let's get to Kara in a second because there's I think there's a lot there, and Gina deserves a lot of props for yeah. what she was able to accomplish, especially having not come from an acting background. But with uh, with the armorer, um, curious about a couple things because I have a couple armorer theories, and I've had no one to discuss the armorer with. Okay. Um, first of all, just looking at the design and how this established firmly in canon the legends idea of this is a creed, not a race that they don't all have to be uh, humanoids or, or not humanoids, but humans. They're not all, you know, just like a Corellian or whatever, whatever we call people from Coruscant. Um, they don't all look like us. Does, what is the chance you think that if the armorer were to unmask that they would be a Zabrak slash Iridonian because of the horns? That would be cool. I, I, I didn't even think about that to be honest, but that would be awesome. I know there were some theories that perhaps she was part of the uh, the Maul Collective of yes. Mandalore. That was the and other that... thing I was going to ask you. Is I I think that there is a because he was saved by Death Watch. 
din it makes me think that there might be some sort of connection there but yeah well go ahead. yes sorry yeah it's interesting that um that the Mandalorian season one drops off and does what episode I think does what I love about episode four where it drops these like mentions of historical events that we have no idea about and then they're told future on and now we have like, the whole backstory and one of those cool sort of nods that we got in Star Wars history was the idea of the purge of the Mandalorians and the whole Mandalore incident uh, prior to Rebels and we finally get to see the, uh, the siege of Mandalore on the Clone Wars, which of course is also worked on Dave, Dave Filoni. Yeah, is it so, possible then maybe that there's a a you know maybe late teens, early twenties armorer in there, like some sort of retroactive reference, you know, that Star Wars loves to do? Possibly. That's what I would love to see. I'd love to see a few of the characters. I'd love to see a CG version of Moff Gideon. Oh yeah, like a younger ISB. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would love to see the armorer. Even if it's just like Mandalorian voice by Emily Swallow, it'd just be it'd just be one of those things where you're like, okay, that makes perfect sense. That ties yeah. in. That would be cool. And I and I and now I'm gonna get in a little bit of my uh my armor theory. I think and they would have to do some some more legwork, but I think honestly that at some point uh the armorer and Din Djarin are gonna come to blows. And that mm. there's going to be, uh, you know, a line in the sand between them. Because the more that we get, and we know that Dave worked on this show, so a lot of the what seem like contradictions now, I'm sure are intentional and will get fleshed out later if we see Bo-Katan or if we see Sabine, whoever it may be, Boba Fett. Um, I think that what Din does not realize in almost a, uh, in a Captain Marvel type way I think that Din does not realize that he's playing for the extremists within his own culture. Because for Din Djarin, who was a child during the Clone Wars, and then, you know, a, a, a teenager in the in the solo period in, in, in the Rebels, and then now to be a man, he's, I mean, he's around the same age as Han Solo, for him to not have even have heard of Jedi, it's one thing for you know, a bartender off in some cantina and I have heard of them or to know exactly what they're called, but you're a Mandalorian and they're in for Quill to be able to tell you your history, but you don't know about your chief enemy or about your relationship with them culturally is a little weird. And it raises a couple questions. Is that how they raise specifically foundlings in a more conservative way where, well, we don't tell them about some of the threats out there or is it that, the group that the armorer is running, which is not a clan, it's a tribe with multiple clans in it, hence why she says you're now a clan of two, is the armorer running some sort of, you know, my buddy Matt called it a, a doomsday cult where we know that this helmet rule was never a thing. So in the same way that there's multiple types of, like, Christianity, I think it's going to, you know, if Din Djarin meets someone like Bo-Katan, Bo-Katan might look at him and say, what's wrong with you? Like, what do you mean you can't take that off? What do you mean you've never heard of this? What do you mean you've never heard of that? And we might realize that the armorer, if the mall thing is true, was raising a brutal, uh, closed-off uh, Mando group. 
That's interesting, yeah. Um, that could be the case. Like, he's the uh, the Kimmy Schmidt of Star Wars. Yeah, where, <laughs> yeah, where it's like, he, he, the only people you knew were the people that raised you, and then the purge happened, so there was... There wasn't exactly any uncles or friends to get a different outlook on. Now only one of you is allowed out at any given time. And, you know, all of these extra rules where I can't see Sabine coming back from whatever adventure she had um, after Rebels and meeting someone like this and, and, and jiving with him at all. Like they feel like such not just splinter groups, but like drastically different cultures. And the obvious tag at the end of the the armorer's um, sequence in chapter eight of how effortlessly she destroys those stormtroopers and, and like I mean destroys them <laughs> like it yes. was brutal. Uh, it made me realize, okay, you're going to be a recurring character. I wonder where you fall in, and I don't see Din softening and changing, and eventually probably removing his helmet. Hopefully, with Omara from chapter four. I don't see the armor condoning that, and I think it would be a clash. Yeah, that might be an interesting sort of discussion. And like you said, I think that we're definitely going to see Katie Sackhoff at some point as Bo-Katan. Um, I, I used to hope so. I hope so, you too. Know, her career path has been up and down. <laughs> promoted, demoted, promoted, demoted. Um, yeah, I I think it's worth to remember is there, there are different sort of planets, so while Mandalore's the core, there's also these outposts, and he had Concord Dawn, and places such as, like, where Jango Fett was probably raised. I'm still yeah. convinced he's, like, sort of the same as the Mandalorian, in, in a way, like, he was raised by some sort of group. Um, yeah, because the, the you know, yeah, that, that, that I think that conversation gets overblown, the Jango Boba thing, where what what is his name? Prime Minister? Uh, uh, or, yes. What is his name? That guy, that guy in Clone Wars who says, oh, Jango Fett was not a Mandalorian. Yeah, I, I understand that that's a, that line comes from George, but the fact of the matter is, is George is not the creative head. So that could be, well, from a certain point of view, like maybe that particular guy hates Jango Fett. <laughs> like, it doesn't yeah. mean, you know, like that, that, could, that could be written in any number of ways. So, but you're right, there are, there are different home worlds for Mandalorians and maybe it is just a, a cultural thing, but. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out because I think that what it means to be Mandalorian is one of the most interesting questions. And I didn't see myself caring about it when the season started, you know, because I like Sabine's my favorite Rebels character. But that's mm-hmm. the extent of my Mandalorian love. Like I watched the Clone Wars animated series for the Jedi Knights more so than the Mandos and stuff. And it was always interesting to me. But by the end of it, when Baby Yoda is wearing that Mythosaur necklace, I was like, Oh my god, like I care so much about this. I care so much about what happens to these people. I how dare he hold the dark saber? Like I was yeah. so uh, just I was so irate. I was yeah. Uh yeah, to finish off that thing, it was Ulmac. I remember his name. It was Prime Minister Ulmac. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who wasn't the most trustworthy person anyway. Exactly. Um and yeah, like I seeing the I remember so much joy and like happiness that the sister of Satine was finally going to save Mandalore from the oppressive rule of the Empire, and then when they opened the episode of this, uh, the season with like, oh yeah, the purge, I was like, oh man, but just <laughs> specifically seeing the dark saber being wielded by 
this Imperial made me so mad. <laughs> I was like, how dare you? You, d- you don't deserve to pick that up. So yeah. that's a story I want to see told. Um, that's a story that I think is just going to be so interesting to sort of delve into. And I really want Katie Sackhoff to be in it. Not yeah. Me too. Especially because I think that her and Giancarlo Esposito doing scenes would just be amazing. Because he's he is so good. He's, he's amazing. I was saying to a buddy of mine, I have never seen in any Star Wars property an exposition dump delivered as well as the one that he does in Chapter 8. Where he's like, I know you, I know your backstory, I know you, I know your backstory, I know you, I know your backstory, I'm going to name drop two historical events, I'm going to explain to the casual viewer what this weapon is. Like, it just goes on and on and on, but it is so deliciously sinister. The reason why, yeah, one of the reasons why is because it it fits the character perfectly, and you know that, that that isn't the first time he said that speech to some people. Yeah, like he he's he's probably done that like an exposition dump to about fifty people, um, and the way that episode begins with the scout troopers was just excellent, hilarious, and oh yeah, that's great. Yeah, the way that they depict the empire in the post return the Jedi material is some of the best stuff I've seen since um, a very underrated game that Star Wars Uprising was this mobile game. I don't know if you remember it, I remember, but I don't think I ever played it. It was. I thought it was pretty underrated. Like it did a really great job of sort of delving into that sort of timeline um, and how the empire sort of fractured off. And some people were like, "Nope, the emperor's not dead. Don't worry about it. We'll just keep keep continuing, keep going on." Yeah. And we see a, a sort of a separate splinter group, obviously, in this universe with uh, Moff Gideon and his uh, nefarious plans. But yeah. How I'm do you feel about, about the? Uh, how do you feel about the fan theory that Moff Gideon? is a Mandalorian traitor. That is interesting. I feel like if he was a Mandalorian, Din would have known about it since he knew about the fact that he was an ISB agent. That's true. Um, so that could that could be the case, but I feel like it's more of a... Obviously, he took advantage of a very uh, distraught time. Uh, obviously, they just lost Thrawn. <laughs> To God yeah. knows what back then, um, they had no idea what. So I'm sure that like, he was one of the sort of higher up, smart Imperials that they just pushed out of there. That's true, because you, I mean, when you look at it, the timeline of galactic events in one calendar year, Krennic, Tarkin, and Thrawn are all eliminated from the equation. Exactly. Yeah. Not great. Yeah. Not not a good time to be Sheev. Not when middle man- <laughs> middle management is dropping the ball so consistently. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think that the, there's a lot to be mined there. And like we were, we were talking about Kara, of course, and Kara, I think, and Grief uh, both bring a lot of charisma uh, to the show. And they do a good job of, of providing different perspectives and things to bounce off of Din Djarin, um, because I think that he, like Batman assembling the Bat family, because there's so many parallels, of course, the orphans, that the orphan that takes in an orphan and the um, softening and, and the way that he treated uh, the uh, Bill Burr crew uh, Mayfeld and, and all those guys where Din that we meet in chapter one probably would have killed them all without hesitation and sliced mm-hmm. them with a door. He instead picks them off and locks them up. Like he definitely changes and is softened by those around him. And I think that even grief who he was had an adversarial relationship with, um, tells him at the end, you know, maybe it's Baby Yoda that'll be saving you. 
So I think that they did a great job of surrounding him with characters, even even one shot characters like Amy Sedaris and and Chapter Five. Like even though a lot of us were kind of meh on that episode, she rightfully so says this is not how you raise a kid. You can't just leave it in your car. Yeah, <laughs> which is always great advice. Um, yeah, I feel like it's a great sort of exploration of his character. Obviously, he sees himself in Baby Yoda from like where he was in the child. And there's that great sort of um, parallel in episode eight between the flashback scene and him with the baby. So it's nice to sort of delve into that and like he's unconditioning himself of the bounty hunter lifestyle he's got sort of attached to. And like you said, yeah, it's really good to see him. And I think the Batman metaphor is actually pretty cool because there's a bit in episode six where it's literally like a scene from the dark knight rises with the uh the corridor with the lights oh, the, the lights oh yeah it's, it's, it's so a, good it's so satisfying it's such a batman move i was like yeah batman <laughs> and and then when his whole uh his whole like hail mary move in chapter eight is i'm gonna grapple hook onto that thing when it flies by <laughs> yes yeah that's pure batman as well just Oh, it's, it's so good. Or can think of us. I want a bounty hunter game where I get to do that because that'd be so much fun. I really hope that they add uh, Dinjarin into Battlefront Two. That would that'd be, be so, interesting. That would be so nice. Um, maybe Yoda is your like one of your special powers. Oh yeah, it's like your middle ability. Like he just he just holds out his little. Do the magic hand, baby. That should be the name <laughs> of the power. Do the magic hand. That's that's I think is my most quoted moment of the entire season. It, it cracked me up. It's so yeah, the comedy in that episode particularly is is just great. I mean, and that's what you get from someone like Taika, who is great in the show as well. I mean, we haven't mm. even given love to Quill and and IG, who the whole sequence of uh, Quill explaining how you nurture something into being better is such an obvious. You know, nurturing is such an obvious theme, of course, with the the fatherhood stuff, but just in general of how Din is the way he is because of being brought up in such a tough circumstance. And we see how baby Yoda is being raised to think that flying the ship and being violent is all I need. Like, he's like, oh, you're messing with my dad. I'm just going to choke you. Like he Din has to be now more aware of how his actions affect other people in the same way that Quill was able to positively affect IG. Yeah, exactly. And I think that while we all sort of praise Taika for his comedy, what a lot of people don't sort of speak about is how amazing it is at being emotional and getting those emotional sequences spot on. Like I watched Jojo Rabbit the other day and it's one of the most moving films I've ever seen. And it's the same with his, his other back catalogue. Like, he's so good at those dramatic sort of emotional beats. And even as an actor himself, like, seeing IG say goodbye to the Mandalorian. Yeah. Like, there's so much emotion from a robot. It's so yeah. good. And just the whole idea of, you know, I've never been a living thing. And how he was able to give Din a moment that no one else had to see, but that will profoundly change the rest of his life, where... He was able to be his most vulnerable with the thing that he hated so much. And he hated them from a, a very natural, real-world place of prejudice where mm. it's, it's I can't separate my trauma and I'm generalizing all of you. You know, it, it's that whole, it's the canon, like, woo hair from the cantina hates droids for the same reason. And now we're to finally be able to explore that 
you know, on this streaming service that millions of people are going to see this show. And it, it's nice that the story came after, you know, L3 and Solo. Now I think that people are going to see the droid characters in a, in a hugely different light. And, and with Anthony Daniels and, and Skywalker, who I think that's his career best. Yeah, and I think it does a great job at, at showing how violent the Clone Wars was as well. Like, because I love the battle droids and how ridiculous they are, but at the same time, they they are like terrifying in, in some regards, especially like the super battle droids and the idea of like all the damage that was done. We never get to see like the the like the actual effect on some people's lives. We get to see it in the Clone Wars, obviously, but for wider viewers, it's nice to see that in the live action sort of space and how devastating that must have been. And it sort of adds to the world we see in A New Hope again. Right. And I, and what you just said there, you know, the live action space uh, is, rings true throughout this whole show. And it sucks that we still have that um, cultural separation of validity in our brain versus from live action to animation. But it is there. It is something that we all have to work with. And it's hard to... You know, like it would be way easier for me to convince my mom to watch Mandalorian than ever would be to convince her to watch Rebels. And that's just something we have to accept. Um, But it's nice to see Favreau and Filoni take that as an opportunity to say, hey, well, now you're going to take, you know, a a B2 battle droid seriously. Now you're going to see, you know, a loth cat on the floor of that restaurant and uh, and be able to experience that for. For, for new viewers to experience that who maybe would have a hard time watching, you know, a CG animated show. Um, lots of different things like that. Like, I would love for season two, and I guess this will be how we sort of wrap up the episode is talking about season two. I would love for them to throw in, like, a puffer pig. Like, give me the things that would be hard <laughs> sells, like, and 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 force people to see them in, in this new light. I mean, we know we're going to get a jacked Gamorrean. Uh, as, Sexy as our... Gamorrean. Yeah, sexy Gamora. I'm I'm ready. I'm ready for this <laughs> for the 12 inch Hot Toys. I, I'm I'm excited. So what what are your your hopes and your predictions and and aspirations? My prediction uh, during episode three was that we'd see Boba Fett, and then at the end of episode five, we had that sort of tease. Yes. And I was joking. Well, I wasn't joking, but I, I had a fear that they would introduce Papa Fett. And I don't know how I feel about that at the moment. So it's a prediction, but I don't know how I feel about the prediction, if that makes sense. I would be okay with it, but I don't want... And I and I have faith in, in Filoni, especially. Uh, Favreau, too. But I know that Favreau, you know, there's so many, so much, so many rumors and speculations that... He wanted to do a Boba project, so I'm not sure where he stands on it at this moment. Like, I'll always wonder if Favreau is satisfied with the character of Din Djarin or if he sees him as his as his second choice. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the key is to not buy into the cult of Boba Fett. Like, he can't show up and immediately get the jump on Din. You know, there needs to be different strengths there. Because I like that they made Din fallible, where he does get beat up a lot. He does, you know, it, it does take him a few tries to learn different things like riding a blurg and things like that. He's not a perfect warrior. Mm. And that that would be the thing with Boba is don't make him some uh, because he survived the Sarlacc. That therefore, he is badass and has a 10 out of 10 in all categories. We still we saw him get whacked and fly and fall into the pit. He still needs to be fallible, too. And if they were to ever battle or anything, 
I would want it to see sort of uh, an even playing field. Yeah, because the, obviously the major thing is that in Aftermath, we see someone else take the armor and become sort of a law enforcement officer, a yeah, cowboy uh, on Tatooine. Cobb Vanth? Yeah, Cobb Vanth. Yeah. Um, so he obviously would have had to get new armor unless he killed Cobb. Um, but like you said, like he has to be fallible. He has to have weaknesses. And I feel like one of the cool things is that obviously the Sarlacc pit. If he's going to escape the Sarlacc pit, there has to be some sort of repercussion for that. And I feel like maybe he's he's dying, maybe he's injured, or it, something I thought would be interesting. So obviously he's a clone who has a very specific DNA. If he's accelerating at a much higher pace because he's supposed to age properly, but maybe the Sarlacc pit damaged his cells or something. Oh, as it digested him or something, or as it attempted to digest him. Oh, that'd yeah. be really cool. Oh, and just and just to see Tamora Morrison just get a lot of material to work with would be phenomenal. I was about to say, like, oh, if only there was someone who could play him that was slightly older now. Yeah. <laughs> then he's supposed to be in that timeline. Get Tamora Morrison. And oh, also it's awesome. the I the idea of both not only the, the tease of like you know, the the Spurs, but also the Kaminoan elements of the story. The idea that we see like these Kaminoan pads on the Doctor, and the idea that the Emperor, the Empire is trying to take Baby Yoda for some reason, and now we know at the same time that Palpatine is alive, and Palpatine is looking for cloning certain things, as we know from Episode Nine. Yeah. So, and 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 again, we we don't know necessarily. Like we know that Palpatine says, "I've died before." We don't know how much time he spent, quote unquote, dead. So it is possible that this is not necessarily like Gideon saying, oh, Palpatine wants the baby. It might be Gideon saying, oh, Palpatine left us instructions on how to bring him back. Like, it could be so grim as to if we sacrifice this cute little thing, then we can finish Operation Resurrection or whatever they want to call it. Exactly. I like the idea of there being like a dual um, enemy for season two. Of perhaps, or like even like three enemies. So you've got Boba Fett trying to find some sort of cure to stop himself from dying of old age. The Empire trying to save, like, follow the orders of trying to bring the First Order to, to light and also get this baby to help Palpatine. And then you've got the other outsiders. So you've got like the gang from episode five, um, episode six, which I think will return. Yeah. I think that agreed. was a cool, like, setup for a sequel. Um, the Revenge Definitely. of. Bill Burr. <laughs> Definitely. And, you know, and that would be an interesting way to um, rope back in, you know, your grief and your Cara Dune. If it has to be gang warfare in some sort of way where Din can't take them on, maybe they recruit more evil guys to their side. Um, and they were great. I mean, all the guest stars this season, I mean, you get the criticism of sometimes the guest stars take you out of it, but I thought that they were effective and I'd be happy to see them again. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I guess the last question is, how do you want the Baby Yoda storyline to grow and change in uh, season two? Are you hoping to see, or maybe rather hear, uh, Baby Yoda's first word? Do you think that it needs to be a lot of progression because of what Yoda said that, you know, for 800 years have I trained Jedi? Like, 50 years from now, you need to be in fighting shape, baby. Yeah, I feel like, obviously, it's going to be... A lot of the storyline will be Din trying to raise the baby while also 
trying to find more information about who he can give the baby to. And that's a question I, I'm interested by because there's two major options in my head, at least. So the first option is that we could potentially see Ahsoka because we know yeah. that she's alive in this time period. Yeah. And we know that she could potentially raise the baby. And it's Dave. And it's Dave Filoni. And it's Dave, and you know that he's got Ashley on speed dial, just exactly. ready. He's got the prosthetic team ready to go, the makeup team. And that, <laughs> and, and, and that was, you know, my initial thought where, and I and I pitched this question to uh, Alex and Molly of, of Star Wars Explained in one of their Q&As videos, which was based on the dialogue that the armorer has with Din. She says, you need to find his people. But what Din says, and obviously this is new information to him, which I addressed earlier, is, is how was Din raised? How much does he know? His reply is, you want me to return him to a race of enemy sorcerers. So does that mean that Din is confused and he thinks that all of these green pointy-eared beings can use the force? And maybe they can, we don't know. Um, or is he thinking, you know, in the same way that Mandalorians are a creed, not a race, is he just sort of using shorthand and he's thinking, well, I'll just find the first person that can levitate things with their mind and that'll be his people. Is it, is it biologically his people or is it the creed? And I think that, that that's what you're sort of getting at with Ahsoka. Yeah, I feel like it's the creed. I feel like he's trying to find the Jedi. Um, because they're the, they're the most equipped people to deal with the baby. Uh, and that's, yeah, I think either Ahsoka will see Ahsoka or something I think would be also interesting would be Luke Skywalker. Yeah, and I don't know if they'd go that far, but I would be down. I mean, we we saw how affecting how effective the de-aging was on Mark in Skywalker. Of course, there is mm -hmm. also the, the Sebastian Stan of it all, um, if they ever chose to go that route. But I think that that is extremely interesting, and it, and it does tie in with those rumors we've been hearing of saga characters appearing in this new season do i think that luke Han and leia are on the table not maybe yet i don't think but you know there is also you know chewbacca where the chewy and the droids the genius of them is how they can be dropped into any period exactly so who's to say that when the gang comes for him you know bill burr and everybody and he's putting his crew together that it's not you know Jonas doesn't come in and do an episode so that would be cool. If I was going galaxy brain um, sort of crazy theory time and I was very, 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 very spoiled, it would be really cool to see Luke and Ahsoka. <laughs> oh, I mean, oh, it would just be out of this world because, you know, if, if a Rebel sequel series and this are happening at the same time, mm. it could be, you know, you could get some cool, like, corporate synergy somewhere out there bob Iger, you know just pounding his fists together ready to go like uh if if, if if we get the ahsoka luke you know let me tell you about your father conversation and then in animated form and then it's hey let's have some adventures and then in live action we see the adventures and they run into dinjar and like things like that i mean just the potential of where we're headed just in terms of the the franchise layout is so thrilling because with obi-wan and cassian the rumored two animated series that are in development mando season two 
uh, obviously films, but, you know, Project Luminous, like we are about to reach critical mass where there will never be a season, quote unquote, entertainment season without this. Mm -hmm. So so everything can just roll together and fold. So if, you know, Luke and Ahsoka, I think is on the table. And I also don't think that Mark Hamill is as done as he says he is. Yeah, I feel like he'll be up for it. I think if he could do like when he did like those, um, was it the Forces of Destiny or Galaxy of Adventures? Uh, Forces um, of Destiny, yeah, where he he voiced Empire Luke and Return of the Jedi Luke. Yeah, like if he can do that, then I feel like he's always up for it. And it depends on the stories. Like I'm sure he'd be willing to like work for these people. Um, and also, I'm very, very, very biased, and I love Luke, so <laughs> I want to see that happen. And yeah. like you said, the the Rise of Skywalker CG on Mark Hamill was exceptional. Yeah, it looked really good. It looked really good. Like I know it was dark, obviously, but it was that was such an effective scene. You know, I, I thought that that was really well done. Um, and we'll have to get into that soon. Maybe we could we'll do another episode together talking about um, Luke between trilogies and how we feel because um, there's the Rise of Kylo Ren comic right now. Obviously, mm-hmm. there was the uh, Battlefront Two campaign, which had a good amount of Luke. There's, you know, the Legends of Luke Skywalker. So um, that is a, definitely a potential topic for sure. But um, we've been at this already for for over an hour. I don't want to take up too much more of Charlie's time because it is nighttime over where he is. Uh, and I haven't even had lunch yet where I am. So <laughs> I, I'm in the much uh, uh, advantageous position here. Um, but thank you so much uh, for this conversation, man. I feel like we we dove deep. Yeah, it was so much fun just to talk about all these different stories that are coming out because even the saga may have ended, like the future is pretty bright for Star Wars. There's so much directions it can go into, and I feel like we've got some special stuff coming that way. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So uh, let's give them the rundown. Um, let's plug it all. Let's talk Imperial Senate. Let's talk about your writing. Tell everybody where they can find you, where they can check out your work, your socials. Uh, do it up. Let them know. Okay, cool. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at CMWASHBY. I've got a sort of a link of all my stuff and all my writing pieces. I mainly write for But Wido Podcast, which is a great website. You should check them out. Um, as for the Imperial Snake Podcast, which is the podcast I co-create and co-host, you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash impsnitpod. We're also on Facebook. We've got a Discord, even the chat. All Star Wars stuff there. It's all, it's all fun over there. Um, We've got a Patreon if you want to, you know, help us out that way, monetary-wise. And uh, that's about it. Oh, also, we've got a, sorry, a tea Public store. We've just released a sort of a new shirt design, which is Space Sluts, uh, <laughs> which features uh, <laughs> the beautiful face of Oscar Isaac. And, oh, and it is a beautiful face. And, uh, yeah, uh, our co-host, Nicky, uh, got his shirt in the post yesterday. And he assures me that it is a very big design. And um, if you want to walk out in public with Oscar's face with the phrase space lots on it, go ahead. I think that that's definitely a uh, must for Celebration Anaheim. Um, are, we, are you going to be there, by the way? Um, I'm working on it. Yeah, at the minute, it's uh, not sure. Okay, cool. We'll, we'll talk about that off air um, and discuss potential in-person hangouts and all that good stuff. But again, thank you so much. Uh, We will definitely do this again uh, as soon as possible. This was an absolute blast. Um, I feel uh, uh, like this was therapeutic in a lot of ways (laughs) for us to be able to be like, 
uh, things that we're confused about that we don't get, uh, be it fandom, but also just to dive into so many great stories and, and tangents and theories uh, in a positive way. So I hope you all enjoyed, and uh, we'll definitely talk to you again soon, Charlie. Cheers. Thanks for having me on. Well, all right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you again so much to Charlie for coming on to the show. Charlie Ashby, the great, one of the best people in our online Star Wars community. It was so great uh, being able to talk to him, being able to dissect all of these things, and hopefully we'll be able to do something again soon, whether it's on this show, whether it's on Imperial Senate, whether we come up with something all new altogether. Who knows? Commentaries, different things. I mean, I could think of a million different ways that you know i could i could keep bugging charlie uh to to come on with so it uh definitely was uh, an honor to have him on uh we already discussed where you can find charlie but of course for this show if you are listening on apple podcasts definitely goes a long way for you to leave a review to leave star ratings things like that if you're listening anywhere just to spread the word is wonderful you can tweet the show at Octo Radio, A-H-C-H-T-O Radio, and that's on all your social media platforms, including Instagram as well and Facebook. You can find me at A-D underscore Strider on Twitter, at A period D period Strider on Instagram. Feel free to reach out. I would love to talk Star Wars or movies in general with each and every one of you. So it's been an absolute pleasure, and that does it for today's episode. We'll be back soon with our next guest, who will be the director of the Looking for Leia documentary on sci-fi, and that is Annalise Ophelian. Or if you are listening to the episodes when they are both out, definitely just jump over to that one right now. So in the meantime, punch it, Chewie.